is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Hello and welcome everyone to yet another edition of the Enter Sad Men podcast. The show where we review, rate, and rank the very best that hard rock and heavy metal has to offer. We take three albums a week, one each, along a theme. And when I talk about we, I'm talking about myself, Mark, my and my two Partners in crime, Richard and Steve. Hello, boys. How are we? Very well, very well indeed. Nice to see you, boys, visually, remotely, as it, as it always is at the moment. But yeah, good to be here and uh, looking forward to this one. Looking forward to this episode. Yeah, definitely. Hello, hello, both of you. Hello, everyone. So this is episode uh, seventeen, uh, which means that there have been sixteen before this. Seventeen means that we are reviewing albums. 49, 50, and 51. And the theme this week, well, the theme is dictated by the currently temporary Tico Torres Tombola of Topics, which builds up a random number, which we cross-match in a scientific way against a whole list of topics, cunningly. Um, and the to- topic this week, the topic this week, that the temporary Tico Torres topic, uh, Tombola topic, whatever we decided to call it... <laughs> <laughs> brought up, brought up 1981, which is good because uh, that comes after 1980, which we did a few weeks ago. So let's, uh, without further ado, let's get on and talk about the three albums that we have chosen. We review these in the chronological order of their release, which means that, Steve, we're starting with you this week. Uh, what have you chosen? I have chosen Future Shock by Gillen. Good choice, sir. Uh, Good choice. Uh, Richard? And I have chosen a Blue Oyster Cult album called Fire of Unknown Origin. And for my part, um, I have gone, I suppose every week we have at least one that's sort of slightly random, um, kind of left field. um, And it's going to sound stupid to say so, but I think I've probably ticked that box because we've gone for Ozzy, who's not necessarily... Um, among the top artists that uh, that we would, well, not among the artists that we would consider to be our favourites, uh, among our favourites, but uh, nevertheless, Ozzy Osbourne's 1981 album, Diary of a Madman. Um, so there we go. That's it. Um, shall we take a quick listen to uh, some of what lies ahead? Who hound you? No, 
So there you go. That's um, that's just a little flavour of what we've been listening to over the last week. As I say, we start this chronologically in order of release, which means that uh, Sir Ian Gillen uh, comes first with his um, eponymously titled band. Steve, this was your choice. Tell us all about it. Opening album sleeve notes. Man, did, did you call him Sir Ian Gillen? Did you knight him? I did call him. Yeah. No, I have not. I have knighted him. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the country hasn't seen fit to do that yet, so I am bestowing that honour upon him. They're wrong in so many ways. They're wrong in so many ways. You should be. Should be Lord. You should be Lord Gillen. But that's my thought process. But anyway, this, so this is Gillen. This is Future Shock, um, released March 1981, recorded in December to January 1981 on the Virgin label. Um, Last 43 minutes. Gillen produced it at. Ian's very own Kingsway Recorders studio in London. This is the best of Gillen in terms of the band makeup. So we've got Gillen himself on vocals, Bernie Torme on lead guitar, his last album um, with the band. John McCoy, the eccentric John McCoy on bass guitar, cross between Ming the Merciless and the nightclub bouncer. (laughs) Mick Underwood on drums and Colin Towns assuming the John Lord role on keyboards. Um, And the name Lord will crop up quite a lot. Comparisons galore. It was their most successful album, charted at reached number two in the UK charts. Um, I first got it on tape back in in eighty one. Uh, wasn't a huge fan. I'd heard a couple of the albums before. wasn't a massive fan. Went out and got it on tape, and within a couple of months later, I was down at Hammersmith Odeon watching them on tour on the Double Trouble tour. Yes, it wasn't this tour. It was the Double Trouble tour just a couple of months later, which shows how many albums they were spitting out in a very short space of time. Um, and I just thought they were fantastic. It was the only time I saw them, thought they were brilliant. Ian Gillan, we need to say no more about the blokes, just liquid gold when it comes to heavy metal singing. I mean, he looks like Jesus, and he is Jesus. That's the bottom line. It's my favourite album of the... Well, I'll come down with it in a minute because it's kind of questionable, but it's my favourite Gillen album. This is when they were at their best. They didn't last much longer anyway. A couple of albums, very short space of time. Will it get into the Hall of Fame? I'm not sure because it's not perfect by any stretch, but it's it's thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable. Gillen have got to be listened to. We have to assess a Gillen album. We'll probably do more than one of them. Um, and, yeah, I, I don't know, Mark, I mean, I know you like... I mean, I knew you love Gillen, and uh, I know you love Future Shock, don't you? Uh, yeah, I do. I, I really do. And uh, you say it's your favourite album, Steve. It's also Ian Gillen's favourite Gillen album. My memory of this is, it, I believe it came on a double gatefold s- sleeve, didn't it? Um, and I think some of the pressings had um, had a booklet stapled into the middle of them or something, something like yeah, that. Right. I didn't have that. I didn't have that version. I always thought, I have to say, I always thought the cover was a bit shit. I fell between those two stools between being an out-and-out cartoon and being so slightly futuristically abstract. Um, so it ended up just looking a bit shit. But that aside, yeah, I think there are some interesting things, interesting musical choices on the album. I think there's some really good stuff. I think there's some stuff that I'm still not entirely sure I'm sure about, but yeah, I, I like it. My enduring memory of this album actually is of revising for my GCSEs. And I took it into my head that the best way to revise for my GCSEs and um, 
uh, if you're in America, go and Google that, uh, what GCSEs are. But when I, and they were O levels when I was doing them, so you can Google that as well. But the best way to, to revise was to play every single record I had back to back. And uh, my memory, this is the one that I remember. I remember what I was revising at the time when I was listening to this. It was a, it was a history revision, um, Civil War, English Civil War. I spent most of my time revising, playing air guitar, air drums, and uh, miming into a hairbrush, I think, uh, which probably explains my GC, my O-level results, if I'm being absolutely honest. Richard, what about you? Yeah, I, I, um, I remember, no, yeah, I, I never bought the album. I, I remember the, the singles, No Laughing Heaven, and, uh, and, and uh, New Orleans. Loved Gillen at the time. I, I thought John McCoy was the coolest bassist in the world. And uh, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed discovering this properly. What reintroduced me to this album was probably somewhere around Easter 95, where uh, Mark showed his perfect miming to uh, No Laughing in Heaven after a night of uh, too many uh, pints and glasses of wine. So, uh, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed finding this album and, and, and listening to it. So, yeah, so Future Shock, notionally their fourth studio album, though it's actually their third British release given their debut, Gillen was only dispatched to the Far East and a few other countries. Prolific, so between October 79 and October 1981, they were shunt out four albums. As far as I'm concerned, this is the best one. Side one, so it's, it's a, it's a top-heavy split. It's a six-floor, six-four split, six tracks on side one. They are Future Shock, Night Ride Out of Phoenix, The Ballad of the Lusitania Express, No Laughing in Heaven, um, Sacre Bleu, <laughs> and New Orleans. And um, it's a very, very... Nice symmetry to it. Three rockers, um, fairly fast and furious, into, uh, punctuated by a couple of slightly chuggier numbers, and not just punctuated, actually overshadowed by a couple of chuggier numbers, um, and then finished off with um, probably one of their best-known songs, which is New Orleans. I think it's a well-thought-through side one. If you can think through a side, they've thought it through perfectly. Thoughts? It starts with Future Shock, doesn't it? And for me, it's a really promising start. And then I think I think when I first heard this album, I was slightly disappointed and slightly worried about what was gonna come after it, because it just it just feels a bit, I don't know, by numbers really. So the, there's there's dual Gillen vocals pretty much throughout this song. And so my my it, it it's fine as a starter, but the message to me is uh, this is Gillen and here's two of us, and you're gonna hear lots of my voice. I mean, if you've named the band after yourself, I mean, you're entitled to do. You're entitled to be the the, the big bollocks, aren't you? And um, you know, what's interesting, and we're going to come up later with Ozzy, who who had a you know massive built a career in surrounding himself in the best possible musicians to make up for the fact that he was so shite. Whereas Gillen here is the standout performer, really. I mean, I know people talk about Bernie Tormey as a guitarist, but. I think he's quite hit and miss on this album. I really do. And, and John McCoy, by his own admission, will list half a dozen bassists who he thinks are better than him. Mick Underwood is a pretty solid drummer. The, the, the star of the show is Colin Towns, who holds the whole thing together. But um, and it's that um, it's that symbiosis between Towns and Gillen that, to my mind, absolutely stands this album apart. It's that's it's that sort of Lord Gillen, Towns Gillen thing that just works a treat. Um, so yeah, side uh, so Future Shock in itself is of a time, it's 1981, it's new over British heavy metal, this is kicking you in the nads, and it's okay. And, it, and, 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 and what follows 
is where they, where Gillen are so, so much better um, in the second track. Night Ride out of Phoenix, that kind of sort of mid-paced chugger that showcases Gillen at their absolute best. Bernie Tormey can do a riff, and there's a good riff. His solos hit and miss throughout the album, hit and miss throughout his Gillen career. But I just think that the, the first two tracks, if you use those as a yardstick for what's to come, you're hoping the rest of it sounds like Night Ride out of Phoenix rather than Future Shock. Yeah, in a nutshell, definitely. It's a deep purple stomp. The synchronisation of the bass and guitar, the deep keyboards. I don't know. I, I, should this have started the album? I don't think so. I, I think they obviously wanted to launch the album with a bit more energy than this. And this is a cracker of a track two for me. like it a lot. Yeah, and, and, I, and I get what you said about that they wanted to kickstart the album with energy because you've got to take you've got to take your mind back to where we were. It was 1981, and this is and and people were doing Future Shock, you know that kind of song, you know, in in the metal world. So um, don't blame them for doing it. Don't think it works, and I think it works arguably even less with track three, Battle of the Loose Tainer Express, which is as close to Motorhead as they ever got, and isn't really them at their best again. This is almost timeless, isn't it? Because I could, you could hear this on something like In Rock, Fireball, yeah, or or even Perfect Strangers, which was you just took the words right out of my mouth. Because what I was going to say was it's timeless because it could have been on any album in the seventies. But then you fast forward four years to Perfect Strangers, and this would not be out of place on that. You're absolutely right, Richard. I did wonder. I, I don't know. I, I did have a look. I couldn't find anything. Whether he, uh, how many, of the, how many of these tracks were written for this album, and how many had been hanging around for a while. I did just sense. I just sensed this. This one had been hanging around for a while. But maybe. you think this one's got some whiskers on it? Yeah, you could be right. Yeah, it's a great song. But I, I think Future Shock. I get why they've put it at the front of the album, but I think it's. I think it's a stumble. Um, and they've kind of recovered with this now. But for me, they stumble again on the next one. I couldn't agree more. So what's, what's your issue then with um, Lusitania? I think they're trying too hard and it's not in their in their style. I think it's uh, it, it's it's more Motorhead than Gillen. You know, it's too fast for me. Um, I, I'm not averse to a fast song. I just right. don't think it's too Gillen's voice. Uh, well, and, and also he gets... Um... If there's one thing we remember from Gillen, he 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 does like a scream, and and that's about that's about the only track on the album where we hear it. And it's um, I mean, I was thinking it was a bit of a kind of speed king on speed kind of thing. Although I have to say, it, it, in its in its defence, it does contain the um the the best lyric on the album. <laughs> well, that's a big call. <laughs> Pass the bottle from under your poncho. I'm gonna drink till I fall unconcho. I mean, it's just. Um, <laughs> no, I think um, I think we can top that. Okay, well, I think we can top that. I know where you're going, but that's just a brilliant track, a brilliant lyric. No, it is. It is. It's very good. It's very good. But I think that I think there are a number uh, of, of really good. And uh, he's a very. I think Ian Gillen's a very clever lyricist, anyway. Yeah, and also a very clever singer. He, he's 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 singing across the song. The, the, the riff and everything so much. He's, he's the, the melodies in this album that he works out. He's a very, very you know talented musician. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because after after Purple, 
split up. You know, you know, there were the three big characters, weren't there? You know, Blackmore, Coverdale and Gillen. And you thought they'd all go on to great things. And Gillen's voice, you just thought, would propel him to wherever he wanted to go. And it just didn't, did it? It took forever. It took forever, really, after that aborted experiment that was the Ian Gillen band. And um, I'm, not even, I'm not even sure it, it, it happened. If yeah. I'm being completely honest, yeah, it didn't. I, I don't think it happened until until he went back to Deep Purple. Went back to Deep Purple. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. And um, so track four on on the album is No Laughing in Heaven, which is if we if we know anything about Gillen and having seen them, I now know what a fun band they were, and they they were fun. If you ever saw them, this was at their top of the pops pomp, wasn't it? When they were yeah. you know with Trouble and New Orleans and this, and you could see them. They were just they were just having a lot of fun when they were up on stage. Um, they looked ludicrous, um, generally, in a nice way, um, and just enjoyed shutting out loads of music. And when when they got that twinkle in their eye and produced tracks like this, there was no one better. It still makes me laugh. It still makes me laugh. What a great story as well. Man who wants to go to heaven, does everything he can to get in, and then discovers that heaven isn't all it's cracked up to be. But it's bonkers. If anyone's if anyone's out there is listening to us banging on about this and has not heard this track, you you simply have to hear it and and agree with us. It is absolute nonsense. It's them hamming it up beautifully. But but also let's not forget it's a great tune. Every time I hear this, Mark, I think of you <laughs> miming to this absolutely perfectly. Apart from the brilliant lyrics, it it's got a brilliant groove. It's almost a bit rappy. You know, it, it's it was almost echoes of um, walk this way on it. It's a track that just makes you smile. Yeah, it does. And the British public the thirty-one in the charts, which I think's you know high praise, and of course, relatively. And of course, when they uh, appeared on top of the pops, Tormey had just left, hadn't he? I, mean, I think days before, or something like that. And so, so they could still keep their slot. John McCoy played a double neck. And 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 tried to do the solo. Uh, it's uh, yeah. If any if any of you have not seen it yet uh, out there, then please go onto YouTube and look at uh, the uh, Gillen's "No Laughing in Heaven" on top of the pops in the UK because it will make you grin. Yeah. If if you ever had any doubt that Top of the Pops was not a live show of them performing live, then um, yeah. Gillen doing no laughing in heaven. Um, so track five is Sacred Blood. And in, in keeping with, with the kind of theme of the album so far, you know, far, slow, far, slow, fast, we are now have another another belter, which is uh, Sacre Bleu. Well, I, I, I don't quite get the story or nothing about it. I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a brilliant track. If the three quickies on side one, it's, it's my favourite of them. I just, I just admire the fact that there's clearly a French tone to this. And the first two rhyming words in this are silhouette and pirouette. The phrasing is is brilliant, isn't it? The way that just that couplet, the way it's the way it's the meter of it is just really clever. Yeah, I do have one issue with this. I, I love this track. I think it's entirely xenophobic, which I kind of you know I don't have a problem with on on all sorts of levels. Uh, I do have one problem with it. Is there anything other than a bad case of rape? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Clearly he was looking for some meter and uh, thought, oh yeah, bad case. Yeah, that's scan. That's scan. <laughs> yeah. This is um this is this is Dave Menachetti calling for sexual crime, isn't it? <laughs> I'm assuming this is sort of is, is this nineteenth century France, do we think? It 
it feels like it's a, it's an historical tale. Yeah, I don't I don't quite when he does his there's also a really sort of hammed up Franglais bit where he talks about this wouldn't have happened in France or something. I don't quite get any of that because this is on the presumption that this is therefore happening. We're overthinking it. I know we're overthinking it, but um, yeah, whatever. But it just bounces along nicely. It rattles along. Really it rattles good. along very nicely. Yeah. I, I, I like this track. I think uh, it's one of my favourites on the album. Not my favourite, but one of them. It's amusing <laughs> and good for a laugh after you've had a few pints. But in terms of a critical assessment of a song on an album, no. <laughs> or non. Non. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they obviously had a ball recording it, and I'm pleased for them. But it's but you you won't be scoring it too highly then. No, I don't know. I I, I really like it. Yeah, yeah, I quite like it. Yeah, I, I I like it as much as I like um, New Orleans, which signs off side one, which you know is a is a crowd pleaser. We all know it. It's a cover. Uh, I I remember the original. I don't know who performed it. It's the first single off the album. Reached number seventeen in the UK charts. It's a very accessible bit of Americana nonsense turned into something quite rocky. And yeah, it's good fun. It's good fun. It looks good on top of the pops. And I, I bought the album on the back of this single. It was performed by Gary U.S. Bonds, the original. Reached number five in the U.S. R&B chart and number six on the pop chart. I have heard the original. I'd rather listen to Gillen's version of it, I have to say. Is this a good cover? I think so. Yeah, for a, yeah it's a rock and roll song, isn't it? And it brings the curtain down on side one, which is, um, you know, a quality platter, a quality sextet of songs. But as I say, as I said at the start, it's it's not flawless by any stretch. There's um, there's all sorts of hits and misses on on that single side alone. And um, I actually think side two is better. You know, we'll discuss that in a minute. Side two has four songs, which are Bite the Bullet, If I Sing Softly, Don't Want the Truth, and uh, For Your Dreams. And there's a very different feel to side two, isn't there, boys? Yeah, it's it's far more nuanced, isn't it? And uh, much much more sort of uh, much mellower sound. I, I, I agree with you, Steve. I think side two is is better than side one, definitely. For me, there's yeah, there's more attitude on side two, more meaning. What do you mean by more meaning within the songs? So bite the bullet in terms of you sort yourself out. If I sing softly, we'll we'll talk about it in a minute <laughs> what the meaning of that is. I'm sure. Yeah, I don't want the truth. Just in terms of songwriting, the lyrics, there's more more sort of depth. So side one's you know got you know, is is sort of fast and fun, I suppose. Uh, I feel the, the songs on in terms of the meaning uh, on on side two a bit deeper. And it's 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 where um it's where you see Gillen generally at his best when he takes things down a notch. I've always thought that, but. Having said that, I do. I'm bite the bullet. Bite the bullet is actually quite a layered track. There's a lot. There's there's lots going on in this, including a kind of Adam and the Ants drum beat, which is of an era. You know, this is 1981 when all said and done. But honestly, if you if you've not heard it for a while, it's it's pure Adam and the Ants. Brilliant. Stand and deliver. It is, isn't it? It really is. And then. Um, there's there's a massive Bernie Torme solo in this, and we're going to talk about Randy Rhodes later. And um, everyone has nothing but good things to say about Randy Rhodes, which is extraordinary given what a small canon of work they're choosing to base that on. Bernie Torme, everyone knows an awful lot about. And I think, I actually don't think many of his solos are that great on this album, or indeed, I just don't think there's enough melody in them. 
and that's a personal thought, but, you know. I think there's a disproportionate amount of affection for Randy Rose because he was he was killed and, you know, at a very young age and never got to fulfil whatever promise it was that we all felt he had. Whereas all, all Bernie Tormey did was punch someone in the top of the box studio and got the sack. So, yeah, slightly different, isn't it? What's interesting about Bite the Bullet for me over the Lusitania is... Yeah, they're both a similar speed, but on Bite the Bullet, Gillen is singing long notes over the fast rhythm as opposed to trying to keep up with it, uh, which I prefer. And I think if he'd done that on Lusitania, it would have been a better track. From there, we go into If I Sing Softly, well, which is, a, you know, close to a work of art, isn't it? Well, uh, uh, if, if, I, if I sing softly, will you let me? It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I want to be inside you growing stronger. Yeah, no, it, it's um, it's as close as he gets to a love song, I guess. This for me is the highlight of the album musically. Really, do I really think it's just it's just sublime? Yeah, I, I echo everything you both said, and and as I said earlier, I just think as much as I love Gillan, the rock star, Surian, the rocker, when he brings it back, this is the kind of number he's he excelled at with Purple, and he excelled at um, with Gillan. Just think, I just think his voice shines through. A voice that was a voice that was pretty close to packing in. Let's not forget, he had throat surgery about two years later. I just think it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. It is an incredibly varied album: keys, ranges, tempos, rhythms. We've now listened to, or well, by the end of this show, we'll have listened to fifty-one albums. His this is his is still, for me, the only vocal performance that is an instrument in its own right. Uh, so the penultimate track is Don't Want the Truth. Oh, not my favourite track. It's a good one. And, yeah, again, it's um, Gillen, after If I Sing Softly, Gillen go up tempo um, before the big finish is yet to come. Yeah, it's good, solid song. Not a lot else to say about it, really. Nice transitions, verse to riff to chorus. And so to my highlight, which is uh, For Your Dreams, if the first time I've listened to this, album through knowing what i know about gillen and purple if i sing softly could easily have been the final track on this album and it would have been of a type of a gillen type um and then you get for your dreams which is very much of that same type that kind of um fighting man which is the final track of mr universe born to kill which is the sign off on the next album double trouble this is gillen that beautiful interplay between towns on the keyboard and Gillen with the singing. His vocal has never sounded better than it did on this track. It's an absolute triumph. It's a bit, it's a, it's a song of pure beauty, which drifts and rocks. And that's clever. That's clever in itself. And when Gillen does pain and aching and, and mournful, I don't think anyone does it better. You listen to him singing the second verse of this. Ah, just takes your breath away. Yeah. This, this, this uh, just demonstrates its full range, doesn't it? So there we have it. The, uh, the first album on our 1981 podcast, Future Shock by Gillen. Boys, some highs and lows. Well, I, I think my low is probably Lusitania Express, marginally ahead of, of Future Shock, title track. And for me, it could easily have been For Your Dreams, but the highlight for me is If I Sing Softly. I think Sacre Bleu is my is my low point. It's between For Your Dreams and the... Uh, Wonderful, no laughing in heaven for the yeah Lusitania for me um, yeah it's, it's probably the weak the, the weakest spot yeah not a huge fan of it and there's a couple of tracks like that but that's probably the, the, my least favourite and then 
yeah, I, I just absolutely die for for your dreams. The face of a street kid with the lips of an orchid and the eyes of a distant dream. I just, yeah, it's an unforgettable piece of work. Great song. And they are. That brings to a close the doings for Gillen. Right. So, uh, so 1981 has been good to us so far, courtesy of Sir Lord Duke Ian Gillen and uh, Future Shock. And uh, part two of our trilogy is Blue Oyster Cult's 8,000th album, Fire of Unknown Origin, Mr. Richard Napthine. Talk us through this, baby. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, it was, it was that eighth, only that eighth album, Steve. Let's, uh, let's be clear. Uh, yeah, released July 1981. The, the classic lineup of uh, Messrs. Bloom, Rosa, Lanier, Bouchard, and Bouchard. Produced by uh, Martin Birch, who's uh, cropped up just a few times uh, so far. Um, yeah, um, engineer and producing duties on, you know, amongst other things, you know, Machine Head, Rising, Ready and Willing, Heaven and Hell, Peace of Mind. Um, he was a busy boy around uh, this time. Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, it was actually uh, Sandy Pearl and their managers links to Black Sabbath and the Heaven and Hell album, which uh, brought Martin Birch into... Uh, produced this uh, for, for Blue Oyster Cult. So, yeah, so side one, the title track, and uh, then followed by Burning Few, Veteran of the Psychic Wars, Soul Survivor, and uh, Heavy Metal, Black and Silver. And then side two, Vengeance the Pact, uh, then After Dark, Joan Crawford, and uh, and Don't Turn Your Back. I, I absolutely love this album. It's one of their best. Some absolute crackers on it. So I don't know how you two found it. Well, I, I was uh, I was pleasantly surprised as a as a almost a blue oyster cult newbie. Really, you do keep bringing up these um, these they call themselves a hard rock band, and yeah, I, I, it's an easy thing to say. They're a stadium rock band. They're a classic rock band. They're, they're an AOR band, as far as I'm concerned. You keep bringing them out, and we keep loving them. So I listened to this album for the first time. I'm, all my knowledge of Blue Oyster Cult is, you know, uh, Don't Fear the Reaper, Godzilla, Shooting Sharp, all the, the usual stuff. Listened to this album pretty much for the first time. Didn't reference it on Wikipedia or anything. And I was I was, I was, was absolutely spellbound. And the, the, the thought that ran through my head was, you know what? This is like listening to a film score. And then, lo and behold, read it up on Wikipedia and bang, everything's explained and it all makes sense. Although not everything was a film, was used on a film, but that was clearly the origins of it. I just think it's a, I just think it's a really, really clever, innovative piece of work, and it rocks where it needs to rock. And um, I, I, it was a breath of fresh air. Really like it. Yeah, I'd echo all of that. Um, it's not my favourite Royce Cult album, but it's probably my second favourite. I think, I think it's a, a wonderful odyssey of very different styles and you know curios and there's one misstep on it for me but which we'll get to i think it's one of those albums where you forget how good it is until you you come back to it you're right steve it's a soundscape isn't it it's it's and it it does play like a a film soundtrack and we'll we'll get onto that in a moment as as well the where a lot of these songs originated even if they didn't end up where they were supposed to um, so no, I, I absolutely love this album. Thought it was um, it was of, of the three, it was the one I I enjoyed listening to. It was the one that I 
really, of the three that we're doing tonight, it's the one that I really look forward to listening to each time it came around. Yeah, it's interesting what you say, Steve, about um, what, what kind of band are they? Because I, I, I just think they're unique. Um, I think there's elements of psychedelia in there. There's, there's prog rock in there. There's almost bits of punk at times in some of their uh, music. Um, so, yeah, let's, uh, let's get on with it. What, what, what I love about the first track, the, the title track, is um, the synthesizers that start this instantly dated. <laughs> but then you forget it the moment the vocals kick in. Yes, yes. Rich, it's interesting you, you name-checked so many of the, of the genres of music that Blue Oyster Cult, you know, kind of have, have leaned towards. And the one you didn't mention, which is so massively abundant in this album, is uh, 1981 synth pop, yes. which is all over it. <laughs> but I, I, t- I love the lyrics in, in, uh, throughout this album, but in the title track, which is what kicks this album off, I just think that's real. It's the imagery in it is just superb. Oh, I don't know. It's just wonderful. Well, I mean, this this has its origins back um, at the Agents of Fortune album. So you know, many, many albums before this, they were they, they were formed a bit by Sandy Perman as a, as a concept band. You know, these sort of, and their whole you know the themes of sort of aliens and death and life and uh, the universe. And yeah, this and this title track typifies it. Track two is burning for you. I think it's uh, their second most uh, streamed track on Spotify, uh, behind "Don't Fear the Reaper," a track that someone who doesn't know Blue Oyster Cult might know. I mean, it's an absolute classic Donald Rosa uh, track in terms of the lyrics, in terms of the harmonies and, and the guitar. I'll, I'll talk a bit more about his guitars in a minute but yeah you must know this track guys yeah i'm not a big fan of it though i have to say yeah it's a perfectly good song but i don't go i don't go crazy for it yeah i, I like it i think it's um the, the whole point about this album is that is not knowing quite what's going to come next and i didn't know this was going to come next and i guess rich it was a pretty massive hit certainly in the states wasn't it i would imagine must have charted well second most successful song after after reaper classic american Radio rock, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely uh, it is. Yeah. yeah. Let's move on to track three, uh, Veteran of the Psychic Wars, which is one of my favourite Lois to Cult tracks of all time. One of my favourite tracks of all time. I just think it's haunting and, and absolutely immense. It's the, uh, it's the best track we'll listen to tonight. You referred back to this at the beginning... Yeah, earlier on, Steve, where you talked about the film. Now, the film, of course, was the, the animated film Heavy Metal that Blue Oyster Cole were commissioned to write some of the, the original soundtrack for. And strangely, slightly ironically, the only one that made it onto the film was one that was not written for it, which was this one, Veteran of the Psychic Wars, which I don't know about you two, but I, I kind of I, I assume from the lyrics that this is about PTSD and Vietnam. That's what that's my takeaway. Yeah, I, I didn't look into it closely. Just I was too bold, bold, bold away by the music, but I didn't look into it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've always assumed it was about mental illness. Yeah, PTSD and Vietnam and ex wars and, and and whatever else. I mean, it brings tears to my eyes listening to this. Is it someone who's who's just 
just mind is absolutely destroyed. And you know, the, you know, the girl, you know, girlfriend, wife, whatever, is trying to get through to him, and, and, he's, and he's just, and he's just had too much. But the, the, the lyrics are, I mean, they're, you know, they're they're, they're written uh, by um, this uh, British author Michael Moorcock, who uh, Eric Bloom has uh, worked with many, many times before. Moorcock has these ideas, and and then then posts them to Eric Bloom in the mail, <laughs> and then Eric sort of gets them and starts to to, to make songs out of them. These are amongst the best lyrics of a song. They, they. I mean, listen to you know, listen to it now, and it's sending shivers up my neck. Yeah, it's towering. Forget, forget fucking Kashmir. This is <laughs> this. People need to listen to this fucking song. It is Titanic. You know what? I love it. Do you know what it is about this song? It goes somewhere. That's what it is about this. Yeah. Song. Yeah. It's not a plundering dirge. That's what it's not a plundering dirge. Boston versus Liverpool. That's the fucking comparison. This is this is different gear, and if and and also, it's not in the least bit metal. It's just but any self-respecting rock fan, any self-respecting music lover, just has to listen to this. It's just it's towering. It's so different. It's so strange and clever and very difficult to pigeonhole. Don't have to. But, and it's also of that time. We talk about of that time. It, it just embraces that, you know, that sin sound that is, is such a you know, key um, plank of this album. Oh, it's, oh, oh. And it, 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 it was very, it's, it's so clever. I mean, the, the you know, the, the, um, the, the drum rolls, the military drum rolls. And then, I mean, it, 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 people out there, you, you've got to listen to this album on a really good stereo or through a bloody good pair of headphones because you actually see all the other all the other stuff that's going on here. I mean, the cellos. If you, if you notice the cellos coming in through through the song, uh, and and they're, they're so subtle, but they add absolutely massive. Um, so yeah, brilliantly arranged. I mean, M- Martin Birch played a blinder on that track. And I, I don't know, I don't know an awful lot about Eric Bloom, but one thing I do know about Albert Bouchard said that he, he said he, he never sang better than he did on that song. He, he, he said he gives me chills with that. He had never done that before. Praise indeed. Yeah, it's one of um, one of Eric's favourite five tracks for Blue Oyster Cult. I get that. I absolutely get that. Yeah. So yeah, then that gives way to to Soul Survivor, um, which again goes off in a, another different direction. Yeah. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. You don't see it coming. It's just that little intro, and then you you do not see that that melody happening the way it does. It's it's very interesting. I actually, I think it's quite a lazy chorus, personally. But um, you know, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Although I think that I find it quite, I do find it quite atmospheric though. Um, and then there's there's lots of gaps in in. I don't know if this is deliberate, but lots of gaps in, in the song. So it, I don't know. I, I I do feel quite alone alone when I listen to it. You can imagine I'm the last one here. Bloody hell! Maybe it's just me. I think one of no, I, I, no, I don't think it's just you. I I feel exactly the same way about it. I think I think what Blue Oyster Cult do really well is match match the lyric to the sentiment, or match the music to the sentiment of the song. You know, Vesture on the Psychic Wars, which obviously we just finished listening to absolutely fit those lyrics completely the the 
the melody, the song, the structure. The same is true of Soul Survivor, I think. And uh, then that uh, brings us to the last track on side one, which is uh, Heavy Metal, uh, Black and Silver. So this was one of the tracks that uh, was written uh, for the film, <laughs> but then, then was dropped, <laughs> despite, <laughs> despite its title. I think this is, this is as close as they get to heavy metal on, uh, on this album. I mean, yeah, it, it, for me, great groove, uh, good finish, good solid finish to the, to the side. Really? Well, I don't like this at all. No, um, I, don't get, I don't get this either. No? No. no. I think you're, you're right. You can see, yeah, it's the closest they get to heavy metal, and it's, and it, and it's wrong. works least of all, yeah. Yeah, it's wrong. It's wrong. It's like they're trying too hard. It's like they've been commissioned to write something and they've gone, it, 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 it's, it's the Saturday Night Live sketch. It's more cowbell, you know? <laughs> uh, no, I don't get it. I, 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 think, um, I think you take this off the album and it wouldn't suffer at all for it, personally. In, in, in light of what's just happened over the previous four tracks, you know, this is this is this is you know afterbirth, really. I mean, it's 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 a perfectly it's, it's, it's a perfectly it's a perfectly acceptable track on on many albums. It would look perfectly acceptable on this on this track. It sticks out like a, on this album. It sticks out like a sore thumb. <laughs> Sub average. Yeah, I, I I don't think it's as good as the stuff that's preceded it on this side, um, but. I don't think it's as bad as you two are making out. I, I, I know it's got it's got echoes of um, yeah, sort of, you know, some of some of the, the the few previous albums, yeah, you know, stuff like Black Blade. So it's nothing like Black Blade. Black Blade is 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 degrees, many degrees, better than this. I think. I, I don't. I, I I don't get it. I, I like I say. I think it. I think. It, it's something that they were commissioned to write, and they've and it's forced. It sounds really forced to me. I think. How dare you compare it to Black Blade? <laughs> <laughs> I said it has echoes. Look, if you if you're looking for something echoes, to slap very, off, they're very quiet. I just, I, I, yeah, no, me too. I think it's a it's a seriously okay track, but yeah, that's all it is, and that's not very good. Um, sitting amongst the rest of it. You know, you, you've gone from Veteran of the Psychic Wars uh, and Soul Survivor, and now we're, you know, now we're into we're on side two now. You know, Vengeance, the Pact, and and there's this, you know, it's a, in the nice <laughs> heavy metal is the is the shit in the shit sandwich. At that point, I think you've got two really really good songs, or three really good songs. In fact, no. The, the problem with heavy metal is that you've got eight songs. Yeah, that's that's the number. That is, that is the bread, and and there's not much <laughs> filling. That's the number. Yeah, it's a but, skimpy, it's a skimpy little dash of marmite in it. That's all that is. Yeah, that's I all. That is. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? That that uh, <laughs> when an album is is so good that uh, we spend so much time. Talking about people <laughs> the worst track when, yeah. when an album is universally average. Yeah. <laughs> the only reason we do that is because it's so disappointing. Well, not for you because you like it, but for me, it 
heavy metal was such a disappointing place to go and then it all recovers again you just think well why is it there mm. yeah. anyway don't get that at all never mind um before we get on to site two i mean uh, i wanted to talk a bit about production and i'm he- I, I i i sigh there because i'm not i'm not so sure about this myself i absolutely love this album and it's got a certain a real certain sound about it but I can't help thinking that the production could have been so much better. But then I'm thinking it might have spoiled it. It's quite light. It's almost, you know, it's almost verging on tinny in, in terms of the the production sound. I don't know what, what you two thought about it. I mean, you, th- you think what, you know, the sounds that, the, the, the breadth that, that, that Martin Birch got on, you know, for example, Heaven and Hell. I, I think this album could have sounded a lot bigger, but actually it, it, it might have um, damaged it a bit. I don't know. I'm well, there's no point asking me, Mark. <laughs> I was just, I have to say, I was just sitting there thinking my ears aren't good enough to answer the question, I don't think, because I think the production is right for the album. I think, I think, I think you, you might be right, yeah, yeah. I think with a with a richer production, I wonder whether the album would have been as good. I don't know. My ears are not good enough to to make those judgments. I don't think. Yeah, you know, I, I agree. It's light. The, the it's a very light touch on it. I'm not sure that I didn't, but it didn't. It didn't stick out for me. I didn't think. Well, that sounds a bit light. It just felt right. If that makes sense, mm. you know. No, 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 yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. It's yeah. While, while we're on production, I, I think it's also just worth noting that as we're recording this, it's, you know, Martin but Martin Birch has just um, passed away. And, um, yeah, he was a tremendous producer. Um, yeah, I, I think he, he managed to get the best out of all of the bands that he worked with. One of a breed of that time of really good go-to English producers who you know, as the, as America kind of got on board with this genre, um, was, was the man, the go-to man along with, along with others, you know, his, his, because I think the albums that he produced have brought a lot of pleasure to me, certainly. What did he, Rich, Rich, what did he bring to Blue Oyster Cult that hadn't been there before then? A heaviness? No, no, I, I, um, there's a lovely balance to this album. Um, I, I think, I think, and I think the thing about Martin Birch was whatever I, I to sense he, whatever group he worked with, he got to know them. As Mark said, what they were about and the and and, and the sound that made them them. And obviously, whilst he worked, you know, predominantly with 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 rock and and metal bands, um, he he worked out how that band needed to sound. And that's why I asked the question about the production on this album, because it is quite light. But given all of the what Blue Oyster Cult were about, um, with sort of aliens and universe and uh, and uh, the supernatural, um, was that his intent? And so I too starts with uh, Vengeance the Pact um, and uh, some pan pipes, I think, uh, to, to start with. Um, they... 
this track they wrote and was specifically for heavy metal, I think, didn't they? And, and a, a specific scene with um, this warrior princess uh, kicking ass. Um, uh, but it wasn't used. I mean, <laughs> they, the, the, the lyrics, the, the timing was precise. Uh, and if you look on YouTube, there's a video that shows uh, the fight sequence with her uh, matched to, to this song. And it's, and it's, and it's right, you know, it really was written for that passage of the, of the animation. I, mean, I think it's, it, it, this is, for me, a real hark back to their early days. I mean, it, it's, there's a lot of psychedelia on, on, on this track, uh, lots of harmonies and ba-ba-bas. Um, Albert Bouchard wrote the lyrics. Um, originally a song by Alan Lanier called Dakota Silo Sitter, uh, for anyone who's really interested in that. Yeah, I, 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 great start to see. It's the psychic wars, isn't it? It's out, out of that sort of um, sentiment, philosophy, approach, quite atmospheric. Track two, side two, uh, The Dark, played on a Bontembi organ. So for me... This, well, I know we're going to high points and low points, uh, but for me, this is where the album dips, which is... Oh, not- goodness sake, man. Are we listening to the same album? I, 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 I love this. I found it... I'll tell you what. I, I, I was trying to think of all the sort of 80s pop bands that I'm hearing in all these tracks, and I've had Visage, I've had OMD, I'm getting a bit of XTC in this one. <laughs> yeah. um, I've had Japan, who, interestingly, when I say interesting, we are sad men, but interestingly, they had Japan as a support act. You probably know this, Rich, on the 78 tour. I mean, what a marriage made in anywhere other than heaven, you'd have thought. I, I, I do wonder. It's an open question. I don't know the answer. I just wonder how how much they kind of, you know, liked that kind of music back in the late 70s, that sort of, you know, boodles of keyboards and synths yeah, and yeah. fast forward three years, was it all rubbing off? I don't know. It just it was a really must have been a really interesting tour. Apparently, Japan went down like shite, but um, yeah, there you go. And I think there's a lot of that in this track. I'm not saying it's a bad song. <laughs> okay, so Joan Crawford, and we can't we can't start by talking about anything other than the video. <laughs> okay, um, Joan Crawford is another one out of the shooting shark. Take me away, astronomy. Burning for You, Don't Fear the Reaper, massively well-known song. But the video was fucking nuts, wasn't it? <laughs> well, the, the song's fucking nuts. Yeah, yeah the whole thing. Um, I thought the video was actually a fairly good representation of the song. You know, Catholic schoolgirls have thrown away their mascara and chained themselves to the axles of Big Mac trucks. <laughs> it's just... It's genius. <laughs> so the video is full of these Catholic girls who've turned into vampires. Bizarre. I mean, where's is that in the song? I can't. It's, it, no, not it, vampires. No. Didn't think so. Thought I thought I would have clocked that in the song. But the other thing that's really bizarre about the video is the way the way the band are awkwardly cut. <laughs> situated in the middle it's almost like they're incidental to everything else that's going on around them isn't it they're just playing it's almost like it's a, a scene out of real life real life the band have turned up to make a video and found themselves in the middle of something some other event that they had no knowledge of it's just the craziest piece of video you'll ever see in your life 
and it's really hard to track it down. You'll find it on Vimeo if you want to go and have a look for it. Crazy. As 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 Rich says, it um, it's no crazier than the album, is it? I mean, it's it's, it's exactly that sort of thing. If it, it it's the perfect, if you like, it's the perfect backdrop to a, a, a daft song, which I don't get, and I I love it to bits because I think it's it's just so refreshingly interesting. And at, at this stage of the album, you just think you you simply do not know what's coming next. And I didn't see this coming. It's a great track. Anyway, can we get on to Shack Attack? <laughs> so following yeah, following Jane Crawford is is uh, don't turn your back. Um, uh, and uh, my first two words under my notes for this is almost funky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. And and yet again, entirely unpredictable. I haven't seen this coming. I love it. It's um, it's you know, it's a gem, absolute gem. Really, uh, just different. Just, just imaginative end to a to an ingenious album, and if that was Albert Bouchard's last knockings with the band, he came back. You said, Rich, didn't he? But that's a hell of a way to sign off. He, him and his brother don't have to drive that song along. Yeah, absolutely, gentlemen. Your highs and lows then for Fire of Unknown Origin, Steve. We start with you. Yeah, it's very easy. Um, Incubatic couldn't be easier. Heavy metal, veteran of the psychic wars. I need to say no more. I think you can work out which one's low and which one's high. Yep, and uh, I will. Uh, I will ditto that. Black blade, my ass. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so uh, the the dark and and um, heavy metal around the same uh, level. Still not low, but uh, probably the dark. I just prefer slightly uh, less, and yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm with you guys. Veteran is just just immense. One of the best tracks ever. Good. Um, so that's uh, for our unknown origin, and uh, we move now on to our last album of this episode, and uh, chosen by Mr. Norman. It is Ozzy Osbourne's Diary of a Madman. Opening album sleeve notes. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Now, I know, boys, that when I said this, your hearts must have sunk because I think it's fair to say that none of us are what you might call massive Ozzy Osbourne fans, but um, I, there are a couple of albums that have a, you know, I have an affection for, a couple of his albums. Um, one is The Ultimate Sin, um, simply because it's preposterous and I love it. Um, but the other one is this one. Um, so this is Diary of a Madman, recorded between February and March 81, released on November the 7th of the same year on the Jet label, running to a little over 43 minutes. It was recorded at Ridge Farm Studios in Surrey, studios that have now been decommissioned. Max Norman oversaw the production of this, as he had done on Blizzard of Oz, um, but he uh, he was joined at the console, which must have been a a very reassuring and comforting sight to find Ozzy Osbourne himself sitting next to him, twiddling the knobs, uh, along with the maestro uh, guitarist, or was he, Randy Rhodes. So, the personnel for this, Ozzy Osbourne, obviously on vocals and Rhodes on lead guitar, Bob Daisley and Lee Kerslake on bass guitar and drums, respectively, although you'd never know it from the original album release because they were uncredited. 
By that time, they've been re- replaced by Rudy Sarzo on bass and Tommy Aldridge on drums, and we'll get to the nature of their departure in due course. Um, this album charted in the UK uh, for 12 weeks and got to a peak of 14. Over in America, it went to number 16 and did it three times platinum. So that's the album. I bought this album when uh, I was, I bought it when it was released actually, and I could have actually used it for our Sheer Heart, Sheer Art Attack episode because I bought it purely on the basis of the album cover. I hadn't, I, I knew Ozzy Osbourne used to be the lead singer of Black Sabbath. I bought Paranoid as the single many, many, many years after it was originally released. It was re-released in about 1980, I think, and I bought that. So I was aware of Ozzy Osbourne as the lead singer of Black Sabbath, but for me, this was the first time I was truly aware of him. I went and bought it from a record shop in Hitchin while I was on work experience at my local newspaper during the summer holidays. Um, And I have a huge amount of affection for this album. It's not perfect, not by a very, very, very long way, but I... I think it's interesting enough that um, I, I would say this deserves a place in the Hall of Fame. Um, we'll find out whether you two agree. But were you two aware of this album before um, before we selected it for this episode? Yeah, aware of it. Yeah, I, I mean, I've not really listened to it because um, yeah, I've never made any secret of the fact that I'm not a massive Aussie fan. Um, I appreciate that's you know deemed quite a sacrilegious thing to say, given that he is. Yeah, he's one of the godfathers of metal, given that he was there at the outset with Sabbath and, you know, that there are people who, you know, worship the very ground he walks on. I just, just his voice just doesn't, I, I, I don't like his voice particularly. I also think he's a bit of a train wreck of a human, and he certainly was at this stage of his career. So I'd have had no interest in listening to this, certainly didn't listen to the first album. This is their second album, Mark, isn't it? As, um, is, yeah. is, is this yeah. Blizzard of Oz? Is, is that what they were now at this stage? Well, they were never really Blizzard of Oz. Blizzard of Oz was the name that Ozzy Osbourne's father came up with, I think. So this was supposed to be yeah, a band, but actually uh, the record label Jet always promoted uh, Blizzard of Oz as the Ozzy Osbourne band. And I think by the time they got to recording this, they, they'd kind of given up trying to push the Blizzard of Oz moniker. And it was very much Ozzy Osbourne on his own. And I think, as you said a bit earlier on, Steve, he has made... A very decent career, thank you very much. Out of surrounding himself with some exceptional musicians. Yeah, I agree. And and be, and, and actually, this this album doesn't contain any horror moments at all, which you know several Sabbath albums did, several Aussie releases certainly did. Um, and to that end, it's actually a very decent work of metal. So this album is good, kind of in spite of Ozzy, not necessarily because of him. And I also think, and we'll talk about it later, that he's he's virtually comatose at this stage of his life. Sharon Arden's thumbprints are all over this. And this is about the direction that she wants this ghost of a human to be going in further down the line because he hasn't got a clue. And, yeah, he's he's almost a passenger. Um, he, he claims he's got songwriting credits on this and other stuff. He really hasn't. I mean, he, he, he had nothing to offer. Other than he's the front man of the band and, and a band and a man who we know was going to be a big deal in America. More importantly, his wife to be knew that. And um, that's where this album was looking. It certainly wasn't looking behind at Birmingham. It was looking ahead at primetime TV um, in the States. And but, but for all that, I think it's a decent bit of work. I like it. This uh, 
album passed yeah, pass me by. Um, I knew Blizzard, never really got into Bark at the Moon like you, completely love the ultimate sin for how outrageous it was. Uh, so it's been a pleasure discovering this pretty much from scratch. Nothing deep to say, uh, unlike Steve. Just enjoyed listening to it. Okay, so we'll get on and listen to it. But um, you know, side one, it's uh, a nice little compact eight-track album, four, side, four songs on each side. Side one uh, opens with Over the Mountain, moves into Flying High Again, You Can't Kill Rock and Roll, and ends on Believer. Shall we give it a spin? So as I say, it opens with uh, Over the Mountain, and a signature Randy Rhodes uh, riff. We were talking, weren't we, before the, the episode, before we started recording the episode, how much are we going to talk about Randy Rhodes and the plane crash? I don't think we need to talk about it very much. It's been well documented. I think it is worth saying that, you know, you hear a lot of people saying, God, you know what, just think what what they could have gone on and achieved with, you know, if Randy Rhodes hadn't been killed, if he hadn't been taken from Aussie so quickly. Randy Rhodes had already told Ozzy Osbourne that he was leaving the band after the, the tour for this album. So, you know, that's all bollocks because he was never going to be there for a third album. How good is he? He is good. He's very good. Is he the best rock guitarist in the world, you know, in the world's ever seen? Nope. Not by quite a long way, I would say. Yeah, I, I echo that. I, I, um, so what do you want from your lead guitarist? You want a bloke who comes up with with solid riffs and decent solos ticks both those boxes people make a big deal of the fact that he was a classically trained guitarist as if that somehow makes him exceptional it doesn't he's a very good guitarist and Ozzy was lucky to have him because I certainly wouldn't have you know if, I mean I wouldn't have joined him because I'm not a guitarist but had I been a very good guitarist you, you, why on earth would you ally yourself to this you know car crash of a figure who's um going nowhere seemingly um and Rhodes took the punt having you know done what he did with quiet riot and yeah he's he's a, he's a good guitarist i mean he he, he makes the album Randy mm-hmm. Rhodes. Oh, yeah. neither of these albums the, neither the one before nor this one would have been the albums they were without his involvement so yeah he's a very very good guitarist i think he's in he's enormously talented enormously naturally talented watching him play all the people that say you know, Ozzy and Randy and whatever could have been massive if he, uh, blah, 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 as you say, I mean, he was he was going to leave them to actually finish his, uh, I think his music degree, wasn't he? Uh, his broad range of influences of all types of uh, guitar. Uh, and he had a, I, th- I think he had a real, I do think he had a real, real talent. I don't think you can put him up there because his body of work isn't big enough. But, Watching him and watching a lot of videos of him whilst uh, researching the right album for this week's show, it's effortless in the way that he changes between lead and rhythm guitars and chords and solos and fills. So he, he yeah, he had the potential, the, the ability to be up there. I mean, one, I mean, one thing we didn't mention, which I meant to, you know, whilst we were reviewing Fire Run and Origin, of course, was. Uh, uh, Buck Dharma, uh, uh, Donald Rose's guitar, because I put him up there amongst the the great guitarists in my personal view. I think Rosa is is incredible. Again, is effortless, and I would use the same uh, adjective with um, 
with Randy Rhodes. He just made it look so easy. It's a ridiculously complex stuff uh, made easy. And and one of the for me the, one of the things on this album is his guitar is too low in the mix. He's doing some absolutely amazing stuff throughout this album, and it's too low. I think it's a great, great album. Yeah, I think the mix is wrong, personally. It should have been bigger. The, the second track on the album is, is Flying High Again, and uh, the one thing that is worth saying is that the, the two opening tracks, cracking riffs on them, absolutely cracking riffs. You know, really, really juiced up. Yeah. Oh, just, brutal. Just... just just superb guitar throughout. Everyone talks about all of his uh, Rhodes' riff work, obviously on Blizzard, Crazy Train, and Crowley, and and, and and everything else. The more I've listened to this album, the more I've appreciated his guitar work throughout these songs. But it's lost in the mix. It's too. It, it, his guitar was right up front on Blizzard. It hit you in the face. I um, mean, it doesn't on this, and it's a shame. You know how Ozzy's voice. I mean. Let's let's just throw this out here and just can we just go and alienate a whole load of Black Sabbath fans by saying Ozzy can't sing, right? He can't sing. Never been able to sing. Couldn't sing with Black Sabbath. He was at virtually at mumbling stage, you know, here in 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 day to day life. He's actually not bad on this album. He's not bad. Yeah, I think it's know? one of his best. And there are tracks will come onto them where, given the right circumstances, he. he can sing. Well, he can. Yeah, he can. He can. He can just about carry it off. So, flying high again. People said, "Right, oh, it's about cannabis." Aussie, according to Aussie, this is a story about his resurrection as a uh, singer and an artist. So, track three, you can't kill rock and roll. Yeah, you were saying um, just now about Aussie's voice in the quieter bits. It actually suits him. In, in in this track, you know, he's more understated in in the verses, and I, I think I think it works. It's interesting, I think, that in this song he plays the role of a victim, somebody who's been deceived and played, and I, it's quite a. I don't know. Is it real? Is this how he really feels about the way he was treated? Because yeah, this, I think, this is a. There's an awful lot of autobiography in 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 some of this stuff. I think, and. Um, yeah, except, of course, that he didn't write the lyrics, did he? No, I don't think he did. I thought Lee Kerslake pretty much wrote all the lyrics, didn't he? Well, not according to, not according to the credits, Steve, no. Yeah, well, well, there's, and, yeah, and therein lies the noise. Before we come on to that, and again, Mrs O's fingerprints all over that as well. This is, this is the third track off the album. The first two were singles. This one wasn't. This was the one that, to my mind, really could have been. I mean, I know it lasted the yeah. best part of seven minutes. There was an obvious radio mix in there somewhere wasn't it they could have shortened this seems a sort of marker for those sort of glammy 1980s and it's um yeah his voice is okay a little bit planet caravanish but yeah so um i I like this i i i'm with richard i think i think this kind of suits him really it's um if anything's going to suit him it's, it's something like done in this style so track four final track on this side believer and I think with a certain sense of inevitability, this is the point at which it starts to show signs of falling away. I don't have a lot to say about it. It's, it's, it's meh. Yeah, I've not got much to say about Believer. I, I like, I like, um, I like the bass line. I think, um, 
uh, uh, Daisy's bass uh, on a number of tracks is really, really strong. Again, the guitar is lost. Uh, there's some really good guitar on this, but you don't really hear it. And um, this album obviously was was re-released in 2002. And who played bass on that? Was it a Mexican? Oh, but it was. He was well. He was Mexican. Yes, he was Mexican. Which band is he currently playing? Is it a band from yeah. San Francisco? It is a band from San Francisco. It's um, Robert Trujillo. Trujillo. How do we pronounce his surname? I have no idea. Yeah. So re-recorded by um, Robert um, from Metallica. So side uh, two, let's just uh, ascend. Four, four songs on each side of this album. Side two opens with Little Dolls. And then tonight, S-A-T-A-O or Sato. And then ends on Diary of a Madman. And so uh, Believers, for me, is a bit of a damp squib finish to side one kind of recovers a bit on side two with Little Dolls, I think. What do you reckon? It's a bit of a filler, if you ask me, which you are doing, so I'll answer. It's, it's got a, again, it's got an MTV-leaning tune kind of to it, um, kind of pretty indicative of where Ozzy was heading. It's fine. As I say, there's not a lot of missteps on this album, as in disasters. Um, yeah, it's fine. On my notes I've, here, I've written fairly standard Aussie, but like the chorus. It's not a horrendous <laughs> tonight. So it's track two is tonight. It's um, I, I, I think they've they're kind of aiming for soulful uh, and and sort of landing chintz. It's it's got. Do you know what it puts me in mind of? It puts me in mind of of. of a very poor man's UFO out in the streets. Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, that, that's what I thought. Um, uh, it's a song of two halves for me. Yeah, absolutely. I'd give, I'd give half of the song a higher score than the first half. Again, I think it's got a brilliant road solo and ending to it. But yeah, the, the, the first half, not so great. Rhodes elevates a dreary song to, um, yeah, a pretty, almost, well, I was going to say exceptional status. That's probably over it, but it, it, he takes it up several notches from how it starts. It just bigs up and beefs up. It rolls. I just, I just, it's, it's just a nicely compiled and arranged tune. I do like it. I, I get um, why people think it's autobiographical, but um, it isn't. Because as I say, he never wrote the lyrics. Um, and I think I said Lee Kurzweil did. I think it was Bob Daisley who actually wrote the lyrics. Um, yeah, not that you know. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yes. You got to explain that. Why weren't the two of them on the credits on the album? Because uh, they were they were fired before it was released. And um, I, I mean, I don't know for sure who does. Well, I'll tell you who does know. Sharon Osbourne knows. Yeah. Um, why they were fired before the album was released? I mean, I don't get it. Why would you? Why would you replace? You know, why would you replace? You know, Bob Daisley and um, uh, and Lee Kerslake, who you know, ordinary, you know, hardworking, fairly plain-looking guys with the um, the sort of very big head, attractive, buff, 
MTV yeah. fodder of Rudy Starzo and Tommy Aldridge. I don't get that at all. Do you, Steve? Do you get that? No, I, I, I can't. I can't. I can't see for a minute what was on her thinking. No, don't get that. No. Can you, Richard? Can you work out why why they'd have gone for these two rock gods instead of two, you know, very accomplished musicians? I can't. I don't understand. You mean when they're about to launch the album in America and go on a US wide tour? No, no, not at all. No, no, none of that makes none of that adds up to me for me. Yeah, so Bob Daisley wrote the wrote the lyrics, I think. Yeah, but yeah, I, ju- I just think it's a it, it's. I mean, it's not a great track. I just think it's it's. I just think it's a nice track. I think it's a decent track. I think it's the best best constructed song on the album. Um, in terms of, again, sort of light and shade. And the other reason, of course, I like it is its weird time signature. It's, uh, and you'll be pleased to know, gents, please don't fall asleep. Um, it's in uh, 12, 8, 4, 4, and 14, 8 time. Um, <laughs> and it's uh, those little jumps that make it a bit, just a bit unnerving. Uh, so I actually think, again, credit to the songwriters, I mean, that they, between them, you know, uh, uh, Rhodes and and Kurt Lake and and uh, Daisley, they they wrote a really really good song and a song because of the time signature that Mr. Osborne had real difficulty singing. Uh, so he had to, he had a lot of practice trying to actually be able to sing over these the the the, the difficult time signatures um, in in the verses. Uh, to the point where he said to um, he said to his uh, fellow band members, "I'm not fucking Frank Zappa, you know." Right, <laughs> 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 oh, dear. So, yeah, if you were judging it purely on the music, yeah, I get all of that. Absolutely, yeah. If it was an instrumental, I'd probably love it, but he ruins it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the problem. It's it's the problem with this song is Aussie. It's not the music. Now it's interesting. I actually think it's one of the few songs he's the right man to sing. Uh, the, the slower bits, but once you get past three and a half minutes, no, I don't think so. The, the opening where it's all a bit more uh, and spoken. Oh, I, I, I like all these big cool. swinging choral bits, and I, I, I get it. I get it. I think it's yeah, but the big choral bits. But Steve, the big choral bits—they're not Aussie, are they? Yeah, but you know who doesn't like an old spice ad? I don't know. It's all right. Oh, the, 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 oh, it was Aussie. Or he did all the choral bits. What? Don't talk nonsense, man. Highs and lows. Richard, let's start with you. Okay. Um, the low for me is it's hard to split Believer and Little Dolls. My high, I, I mean, was going to be SATO, but but it's fascinating how uh, the title track has grown on me. Um, particularly over these last couple of days. Um, whether that shaves it or not, I don't know, but it's those those two at the top for me. Steve? Yeah, I, um, I'm not I'm not massively bothered about either of the two singles, but I, all Little Dolls, they're all kind of okay. Probably Little Dolls will fare worse than in the scoring. Um, and, yeah, I, I, like, I do like the title track, and I make no apology for that. Okay, so Believer would be Milo. Um, so there you are. I don't dislike the uh, title track so much that it would be my weak or my low point. Um, I, I do think, for me, the, the my, my high is, is 
first track on the album over the mountain. All right. So shall we get on and score these these things? Because that brings us to the end of the three albums that we've chosen this week. We started off with Gillen's Future Shot, moved on to Blue Oyster Cult's Fire of Unknown Origin, and we've just finished, as you've heard, with Ozzy Osbourne's Diary of a Madman. So let's get on and score them, see where they end up in the Hall of Fame. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. Okay, so before we uh, bid farewell to our 1981 retrospective, um, there's the small matter of scoring tonight's three albums. The albums were um, Future Shock by Gillen, Fire of Unknown Origin by Blue Oyster Cult and Diary of a Madman by um, Ozzy Osbourne. And we do them in chronological order, as you know. So Future Shock, um, by virtue of a few months, was out first in that year. Um, I brought it to the table hoping to find a place for it in the Hall of Fame, thinking it might not. And, well, we shall see. But anyway, the scores were, were thus. Rich marked it 7.05. I marked it 7.55. Mark liked it more than the pair of us, 7.82, for a final score of 7.47. Um, and interesting, boys, isn't it, that um, when they went fast, they let themselves down, certainly in our eyes, because the three tracks that scored seven or under average scores were um, tracks one, three, and five, Future Shock, Lusitania Express, and Sacre Bleu. When they slowed it down, we loved them to bits. Yeah, interesting. Really interesting. Um, so, Rich, Blue Oyster Cult, do you want to talk us through the scores for um, Fire of Unknown Origin? Yeah, so uh, for Fire of Unknown Origin, Steve, uh, you scored it at 7.72. Mark gave it an 8.19 and I gave it a dead 8, giving it a total overall score between us of uh, 7.97. So uh, pretty strong and within it, not surprisingly, from all of our conversations earlier, we've got another of our full 10 tracks. So veteran got a 10 from each of us, joins our perfect track list of a few uh yeah great stuff so what well, is that the first time to- i think that's the first time we've had three tens the first, I thought, is that really i was trying I think to so. get something off let there be rock no that's the first clean sweep we've had well 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 i th- yeah no you're right yeah because i thought limelight did but it didn't because it, w- it was close and uh, i was looking back over led zet four as well yeah i mean you to, you two couldn't quite give Stairway a 10. Uh, <laughs> no. No. But anyway, I dare say there's a, there's a couple of clean sweeps of 10s to come, Mark, as you talk us through Diary of a Madman. <laughs> yeah, baby. Uh, okay, so Diary of a Madman, I, I, I think it's going to be quite it's, – it's quite interesting to see where this ends up because I, there's passing it that wonders whether – whether this is just an Aussie thing or is it is it is it something else? Anyway, um, the scores that uh, that we all gave it. Steve, you gave it uh, seven point zero six. Uh, Richard, you gave it seven point two five. Interestingly, since I have a lot of affection for the album, I scored it the lowest of all of us at six point eight six to give it an average album score of seven point zero six. I think, interestingly enough, I think Fire of Unknown Origin. I was expecting to get an eight, eight something. Diary, I was expecting to get under seven. So, yeah, probably about where it should be. Uh, we'll see where it ends up in the Hall of Fame, I guess. 
That is interesting. What's that? What's that mathematical thing? Some mode, medians, and averages, where you take out the bottom and the top score, and you're left with the rest. Rich, you should know this. You're mathematical because if you take out the top and bottom scores of that album, you take out a five point eight and an eight, and everything's really, really in the same ballpark, isn't it? Yeah, I was um, pleasantly surprised by Durham and Madman, and yeah, it's it's funny with Ozzy, isn't it? Um, and and his you know his voice and how you take it um but i think there are some very really strong songs on that app yeah they are but uh overall i wonder um i wonder where that puts it in the overall hall of fame should we should, should we open the door have a peek in it's time to put the rock in a hard place opening the hall of fame Okay, so here we are in the hallowed Hall of Fame now with 51 albums surrounding us, propping up the 51, Killing the Night, Bad Steve, um, and what is it, eight or so places above that, if my maths is right, at 43 is where Ozzy Osbourne and Diary of a Madman end up. Um, Interestingly... Uh, a place and point three or so, uh, sorry, point naught three or so points above Black Sabbath's Paranoid. Uh, more about that in a second, perhaps. Gillen is next with Future Shock, and uh, he doesn't quite break into the top 30. He comes in at 32, uh, just above the Ritual by Testament and slightly below Strikes by Blackfoot. And top album of this episode, uh, Fireman and Origin, uh, makes it into our Hall of Fame at number 14. We mentioned earlier about Martin Birch producing uh, Heaven and Hell by Black Sabbath just before Fire of Unknown Origin. Fire of Unknown Origin just sneaks in above it, ever so slightly above it, um, say at number 14. So what do you think about that, gents? Well, for my part, I was expecting Fire of Unknown Origins to, to, as I said, to do a little better than that, but um, 14 is not bad, is it? Yeah, and I was expecting uh, Future Shock to do better than that. 32 is quite bad, really, but anyway. Um, I think the one we probably agreed on, and I think we found a place for, is Aussie. And I fancy that's kind of, if it, whenever we do future Aussies, and I dare say we will, well, one or two are better than others, but yeah. You made the point, Mark, that, you know, are we kind of slightly poisoned by um, our views of him as a singer? I don't know. Yes, but I counter that with, I suppose, the the comfort that there are three of us involved in this process. Mm. I think we've demonstrated tonight how massively different our tastes are. You know, we, we, we may each like or dislike an album uh, in equally but we like it or dislike it for for completely different reasons Mm. so the fact is we've all reached a conclusion about aussie and it's not that yeah i don't think it's that it's not that we've gone out of our way to decide that you know we're not going to we're not you know we don't like him we're not going to to give him a fair crack of the whip i think the process means we have to give him you know we have to put some of our prejudices aside and and Judge these things on its on their on their merits. So I, I yeah, he he's the the two albums on which Ozzy appears in this list are smack bang together with naught point naught four of a point between them. Interesting. Yeah, uh, um what's to say? I, I think we are 
all about good albums here. So this is about good musicianship, good singers, good production, good writing, and consistently good songs. And everything will find its level. Well, yeah, and, and, and if, if Blue Oyster Cult had just dispensed literally with the heavy metal, they'd have been, um, they'd have been top ten by now, wouldn't they? Exactly. So there you are. That brings Curtain down on another episode of the Enter Sad Men podcast. We'll be back uh, soon enough with episode 18. But uh, in the meantime, thanks for your company. I hope you've enjoyed it and we'll see you next time. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service. Mm-hmm.